Happy Sunday. We're so glad to be here with you. Yes, we hope today through church you feel a sense of community and a lot of joy. And don't forget to vote. Yep. I'm Mosaic. I'm Ben. And I'm Bree. We miss seeing you all. And we just wanted to say, Good, good morning, morning, Mosaic. Good morning, Mosaic. This morning, I would like to engage us all in some liturgical reading from the Book of Uncommon Prayer by Kenji Kiramitsu. This is a resource that I discovered during the Evolving Faith Conference, so here's my little shameless plug for that. You should go find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Evolving Faith, and listen to it. Although this conference is not yet up, they have talks from conferences past. It's so full, and it's so touching and enriching for the soul, and makes you really feel like you're not alone, as this liturgy, I hope, does as well. So this was written specifically for 2020 and the Black Lives Movement, which we know is so powerful and centered in what our community is struggling with and thinking about and trying to figure out how um, we move forward and how we make our world more inclusive and our society more inclusive and more affirming and more welcoming and more Christ-centered. So please enjoy this. It's called For the Unity of the Church is the specific title. And how this will work is there will be lines of text on the screen. And I will read all of the lines, but when a line is preceded by an asterisk or a star, that means that you'll read along as well. So just to reiterate, the lines of the screen, the lines of the text will come up on the screen and and I will be reading them all, but when a line is preceded by a star or asterisk, you will read those along with me, knowing that whoever's watching this video at any time is going to be reading that along with you as well. So let's get started. For the unity of the church. God, forgive us for fighting for unity, yet scorning one another over facile doctrines, while your children are being murdered in the streets. Grant that those caught in the allure of debating the minute details of your face might return to true worship and the family of God. Help those bound under the structures of authority to be freed to do your work in the world. To the glory of Jesus, the head of the church. Amen. Let's let that sink in and read it again together. God, forgive us for fighting for unity, yet scorning one another over facile doctrines while your children are being murdered in the streets. Grant that those caught in the allure of debating the minute details of your face might return to true worship and the family of God. Help those bound under the structures of authority to be freed to do your work in the world. To the glory of Jesus, the head of the church. Amen. Thank you, Mosaic.
Hi Mosaic. Today is part one of a two-parter on this sermon entitled Systems Are Supposed to Serve Us, right? So today we're just going to look at the uh, biblically that systems or the process of having systems are included in scripture and we're going to look at a biblical foundation for what I'm teaching on for this Sunday. And next Sunday, we're going to take on what we need to do to transform our systems. So I hope you enjoy the sermon. I'll see you afterwards. I think when I think of being Jesus-centered, I think about, you know, reducing and eliminating a lot of the noise that distracts us from who the person of Jesus and who he calls us to be. Um, if Jesus in the, is in the center, we kind of keep our eyes focused on who he is and less about who the rest of us are. And if we're all moving toward a common goal, it'll be more like Jesus. Um, it winnows away, burns away some of the junk, you know, surrounding us. I think it also eliminates the need to look around and see what may divide us instead of what brings us together, which is that of Jesus and who he is and who he wants us to be. I think it's awesome. I think Jesus is compelling. And in the times where I really struggled to name myself as a Christian, it was never hard to say that I love the person and calling of who Jesus is. Um, you know, there's imagery of the arrows. You know, if we put Jesus in the center and our arrows, each of us are all pointing toward Jesus, that means that we have so much in common and so much to be excited about that resonates with each of us. And I think that just produces beautiful fruit. It allows us to be authentic where we are in that circle while still turning our eyes toward the one who's meant to orient us to all things that matter. Um, and, you know, I think it produces grace and joy, compassion, empathy, kindness, courage, bravery. Um, and those are all characteristics I think we could use more of. And I think Jesus compels that. And when he's in the center, um, we are really have this opportunity to respond to who he is. Thanks. Hi, everybody. I hope you've been enjoying service thus far. Um, I want to thank everybody for the contributions you've been making just to make this a wonderful worship experience for all of us. So now we move into our sermon and the title of this sermon is Systems Were Created to Serve Us, right? So as we begin, let me begin. Lord, bless this sermon. Bless the words that come from my mouth. May you be seen in and may we understand the things you want us to do to help this world be what you envisioned it being and to help us play the role that we are supposed to play in it. Bless us, bless me, Father, to speak clearly, think clearly, and um, bless the people and all of us to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So systems were created and are being created to serve and help they play a vital role in developing processes to help us manage our daily lives, build better organizations, and to run major institutions within our society. Systems work to harness the brain power of multiple individuals toward accomplishing some, some specific effort or task. We put together our systems in hope of improved structures and supports that are aid us in delivering better and consistent results. The right systems work to make our organizations beautiful. The wrong systems show our sloppy thinking or that we've left out some 
group of people or some consideration when we were thinking about the system we were erecting. We are often confronted with the question, what's more important, the people or the system? Now, the factual answer is that they're both important. They both really are. The truthful answer is both should exist and work to fulfill human potential in our effort to live out our purposes, be they the purpose that we're given in our biblical mandate by God to be fruitful and multiply, or our church's mandate to help make Philly an even better city in which to live, or maybe our judicial system and its mandate to execute justice and our educational system's mandate to educate our children in this country. And so the answers to the question are represented in both facts, evidential realities of our world, and truth, divine principles and directives given to us by God. Now, I'm a preacher. I'm a maturing theologian. I used to say I was a young theologian, but I don't think I can get away with that anymore. So I take on this subject from that perspective. God's called and gifted, not just me, but each of us to fulfill God's purpose for our lives and to benefit our communities and our world. It is important that our gifts and our talents be placed in locations where we can truly be beneficial. And yet, part of securing our contribution is in having quality systems. We need systems in place to make sure our gifts can be used in the way that we envision, the way that we hope, and the desire to fulfill, again, what God has placed in us, getting all of that out in a way that communicates to the people and helps us all. So we must work to balance the relationship between the people and the system. Now that's a good way to think about the functionality of what we endeavor to do. Create systems that serve, but just as it is wonderful to recognize that the people and our systems, our, our people and our systems, we have to have balance. We must also recognize that maintaining that balance is difficult, it's tenuous. So it's a delicate thing we're endeavoring to do, keep things balanced. On one hand, you have people, our individual and collective pursuits. And on the other hand, we have the collective brain power of humanity at work. So we go, we build processes and processes and other processes, one after another. And when it's good, they link up and work well together. But when it's not so good, the benefit is lost. But the process, the process continues and seems to take on a life of its own. Instead of working to serve the people, the system, having lost balance, starts working to ensure its existence by ceasing to help the people as an expression of our desire, our desire to fulfill our mandates, our purpose, our mission. Unbalanced systems warp the positive attributes, 
that help to maintain health and maintain healthy culture. And they begin to twist the positive attributes so that the system now requires imbalance. Instead of this, the system now requires imbalance because the system has taken on a power of its own. John Steinbeck uh, in The Grapes of Wrath referred to this and he said in his book, but the bank is only made of humans. It happens that every person in the bank hates what the bank does and yet the bank does it. The bank is something more than people, I tell you. It's a monster. Humanity made it, but we can't control it. Isn't that so true? In some very subtle ways, we, the people, have been taught to yield our place in this delicate balance to the system. We've heard and been taught the importance of living for something greater than ourselves. Now, when that is for the common good and we're working together, it's an amazing thing. But when the common good is redefined and it ceases to be about the people and becomes about some of the people or something, we have a problem. And we all know we have a lot of problems, right? Steinbeck called them monsters. And I, I think that's, that's a good description or definition for out-of-whack systems. They're monsters. We have animated them. We've given life to our systems. We've given life to something that wasn't supposed to have that kind of life. Negative life. Life that is drawing away from us and not toward us for benefit. I think we've forgotten that where there is life, life strives to continue existing. And so our systems strive to continue taking on or insulating its power within and not giving its power back to the people. Now, a biblical example of this can be seen in the biblical story of the Tower of Babel. Now, scholars agree that the primary point of this story is to talk about how and why the languages of the world came to be what they are. We have so many. It spoke of a single city being built. They generally believed, the scholars, that the city took the shape of a, a ziggurat. Usually, um, these types of cities, they were round cities, like, like a donut with a smaller donut with a smaller donut with a smaller donut with a smaller donut. Now, these people were trying to reach the heavens. So think about how many donuts they had to, whoa, it's some, it, was, it was an undertaking, right? So, Usually, these kinds of buildings were used to house the administrative buildings of the people in that area, that region, that community. And it was built to house the granaries and also their temple. In the story found in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, the people desired to build a tower that reached into heaven. And by doing so, hoped to make a name for themselves. So, what's the problem with that? There's no problem, really, with wanting to make a name for yourself. That's common. 
we all do. We want to do something that's helpful and we want to be remembered. And that's more so the, 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 the thing. We want to be remembered. That's why we put headstones on graves and things. We want people to know that we were here and that we made a contribution. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's a common desire. The struggle the text alludes to is thought to be the people's attempt to build a tower so high it was it would not be touched by God's judgments like they'd experienced in the flood of Noah. They wanted to be above that. So the people, as a result of building this thing, they were scattered and their language, their languages were, were changed and, and there were multiple languages and it was difficult for the people to understand one another. Now, that's the primary issue being addressed in the story. But if we look deeper into the story, we realize that there is more uh, to expound upon within its context. People don't suddenly or usually decide, never having built a thing in their lives, that, okay, I think I can now, I mean, right now me, if I were to say, right now I think I could build the tallest building on the face of the earth and expect it to be stable. I could build that building, but you guys probably wouldn't go inside unless I had some experts to help, right? So we can conclude that the people who were building the Tower of Babel had some experience before they made that decision. Building that kind of tower is a large group endeavor. And so the people had to come together and be, and be unified. And they needed structure. They needed systems to bring about their endeavor. So we can conclude that these people, they did some building before, and they had learned in their common experience how to organize and manage an enormous endeavor. There was nothing wrong with building the building. There was nothing wrong with wanting to be remembered in and of themselves. But along the way, something in this project, it got twisted. They were probably working the mandate, be fruitful and multiply, in their early efforts. But then something happened, and instead of filling the earth, they decided that they should gather everyone together, stay in one place. They understood that their systems were powerful enough to build the tower that not only reached into heaven, but gave them a new place, a new location, a new home, a new status in heaven. The people were created with a mandate from God, but they put that, a portion of that aside. These individuals were twisting the mandate because their systems gave them the power to do so. It was like, we have the ability. Hey, why not? Everything you can do doesn't mean you should do, right? Everything you have the capacity to, to do doesn't mean you should do. So these folks sought to be fruitful and multiply, but instead of filling the earth, they sought to fill the heavens. That notion made them equal with God. Now, honoring their God as their God, the creator, the authority of all things, if they really wanted to honor him, they were 
follow the mandate set by her. This tower building thing took on a life of its own and became, became it became a thing, y'all. It was a real thing. And God had to come and do something about it because folks were getting off. So God offered an intervention. So the people had time. They had time to rethink this thing and get back on track. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God offered an intervention and that intervention was needed. And that, and that intervention he gave was confusing the language and scattering the people. Now think about what I asked you to do, y'all. Go back to your purpose. God often intervened throughout the Bible in, in, in these kind of ways. The people would do something because um, we get together and because all of our brain power would be centered, God made us tremendous. We have tremendous capacity. But everything needs a boundary. Everything needs a guard. And the guard is the mandates that are put upon us, that are placed upon us. They're not placed upon us to hinder us. That's something that Adam and Eve thought. But they're placed upon us to help us fulfill our purpose and not get off. Because we've learned that getting off outside of purpose starts to separate us. And the goal is, gee, is for unity. The people came together as they built the systems of their society. The people of the Tower of Babel. To pursue their mandate. But again, it got twisted. Now, in, um, another example is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We learn that Samuel had set up his sons to be judges of Israel, just like Samuel was, right? He was a priest, he was a judge. Um, so he set up his sons to do this job, but his sons didn't take after him, meaning that they didn't respect the system that Samuel had set up, the system that, and the relationship that Samuel had with God, and so they didn't seek to follow that. They took the system that existed in the respect that it gave to priests and to judges, but they twisted it. Samuel's, Samuel's sons took bribes and they corrupted justice. Now, the people got fed up with what was happening, but instead of making correctives to the existing system, they allowed that existing twisted system to continue and then they added they allowed it to continue and they added something new they didn't deal with the old but now they had a corrupt system and decided because they could they added another system what do you think They decided that they needed a physical king. And thus, in deciding that they wanted a physical king, they rejected God's role in their society as their leader, their guide, their king. So now they had the corrupt judges and priests, and they added a new kind of government. The scripture tells us Saul was picked for all the wrong reasons twisting. Instead of someone with the ability to protect the people, 
as they kept the people on track to fulfill their mandate. They picked a person based on his appearance. He was good looking. He was tall in stature. He could fight, fight really good. And Lord knows, we keep making the same mistake and picking people in, to lead us, sometimes for all the wrong reasons, just like they did. But God intervened. And time and time again, God would intervene to instruct us, to reprove us, to remove the thing that we created or to give it some different way of existing, but it always seemed to give us time. And God would often correct the kings of Israel. But the systems seemed to take on a life of their own because they had a power of their own given by the people. The kingship, being judges, banking, our educational systems. They have a power of their own and it doesn't matter, it doesn't seem to matter who the person is leading them. Because the twisting is something that's happened in the system itself. Now, there were some kings like Josiah who tried to make the corrections um, needed so he could protect the people. He was the one who found, when they found the, uh, the, the scroll of the word of God, he found it and he went to the prophet, the female prophet, and asked her to explain what it meant. And he made correctives, right? But again, it was still a twisted system. And the unbalances or imbalances in the systems grew and grew and caused it with people within the system and the system itself to seize power. Now, many localities have good ideas about how to correct our educational systems. Getting the word up to the head of our education system so that that person can say, yes, this is a great idea. Let's make it happen throughout. That's a whole nother animal. The system doesn't listen, doesn't feed from the people after a while. The system wants to continue itself. It has its own power. It's looking for a different set of purposes or it's existing for a different set of purposes. And it's moving away from the benefit of all the people toward a benefit for itself. We are animating, giving life to that which was not meant for that kind of life. Distance and separated from us. And so in some cases, we've really created some monsters. But these monsters, no, they don't live under our beds or in our closets. They're out in the open and we engage with them every day of our lives. Now, our systems were supposed to serve us, right? Walter Wink is a, an American theologian, a biblical scholar whose goal in life was very simple. He just wanted to be human. 
He wanted to get untwisted and live a life as God had called us to live. Meaning, he wanted to withdraw from the twisting that happens to us as we engage in unbalanced systems. He spent much of his career in Auburn Theological Seminary in New York. When he was there, he was the New Testament specialist. He was also an activist, working to correct the imbalances in systems through his writing, through advocacy, and he believed in nonviolent resistance. He was very active in the civil rights movement um, in our country and seeking justice across the globe, particularly in Latin America. He is best known for a trilogy of books he wrote entitled Naming the Powers, Unmasking the Powers, and Engaging the Powers. In these books in particular, because he wrote much more, he worked to help us understand unbalanced systems. Institutions like the education system, the justice system, our political systems. He helped, he wanted people to understand the imbalance in our belief systems and our traditions, which too are systems. And he wanted us to understand how the scripture addressed these systems. When I learned about Wink's work, uh, can you say that three times? Wink's work, Wink's work. <laughs> when I learned about his work, when I was in seminary, with the work I was doing there, it helped me so much. My thinking regarding Satan and the fallen angels and demonic influences and principalities and powers became much clearer because of what he, the work he'd done and the explanations he'd given. See, I came up at a time in church culture when much of the evil done in this world was assigned automatically to Satan. Satan did it, evil spirits are at work in the earth, and they, you know, Satan and his cohort are wreaking havoc, right? In church culture, people just talked about how the devil would do things in their lives that caused them pain or caused them to fall on hard times and to keep them from realizing their potential. Now, often I wondered, if we're clear about who's causing all this confusion, why can't we just do something, something of substance, to change it? Now the scripture says, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So if the scripture is saying all that, and we have all this kind of power through the living Christ in our lives, through the Holy Spirit, why aren't we working on these things? I mean, because it was of particular importance to me as a woman facing all kinds of misogyny as a black person dealing with the injustice and trying to find my place and people telling me my place was under and not equal with and my knowing that wasn't true i say stuff like to jesus i'm talking to to, to god about this i said okay jesus you lived you died you lived again to overcome this mess why do we the church Seem, to, seem not to have any power to overcome this mess. People talk it all the time and say all this stuff, but you know, are we really seeing that we're overcoming? And is the church standing out as we do it? No. You know what I love about God? I've said it before, I'll say it again, and I'll say it again. <laughs> I don't care when I ask God a question. God works to get me ready 
to receive the answer. And then God gives me the answer. I've asked God questions that have literally taken years to answer, but God always gives me the answer and helps me remember when I pose the question to God in the first place. It's incredible. It's one of those things that is a part of my living relationship with God. And it helps me to know that God is and that God rewards those who seek after God. So I thank God for that. I thank God for what I can share with you. So, so God, through my studies at seminary and kind of helping me stumble into this guy, Walter Wink, um, it helped me so much. It gave me so much benefit. Walter's, Walter Wink's work was illuminating to me. And so is this other guy. His name is uh, Robert Linthicum. Now, he was a distinguished professor over at Eastern University in St. David's. Um, so he taught the biblical foundations for urban ministry and community organizing. So I kind of taken both from both of their works and have brought it together um, because they had some similar points. He was the founder of an organization called Partners in Urban Transformation. And uh, he also worked uh, as a director for World Vision in Urban Engagement. Both of these guys hold a special place for me. And I, I wanna share with you how they help answer the question I pose. Why can't we fix this mess? If, oh, I said that already. I asked, um, you know, it was a part of me back in the day that was really bold. You know, we're young and full of fun and think we can, you know, do anything. And I was full, filled with that kind of boldness and vibrato. I wanted an answer. And if I had gotten an answer, you know, something that I could work with, I would have been on it. It's just, it's just the thing that happens in youth, right? It's beautiful. I loved it. I still love it. I try to surround my life with young people. I love it. So... I thought we could do this. This can be done. So this is some of what I learned because it can be done. Not in the way I thought back then, but maturing theologian, having maturing thoughts about God, right? Here's some of what I learned and I'm still learning. Wink argued in Naming the Powers that the language is used to address the twisting of the systems and structures in our society are found in the use of the terms principalities and powers in the New Testament. Wink believed that the use of these words, principalities and powers, in the New Testament referred to human systems, our institutions, our traditions, our belief systems. These systems held and hold power, which he called manifestations of power. When the manifestation of the power of the IRS comes down on you, you feel the power, right? right? In describing them, he noted that these manifestations of power always have an inner life and an outer life or an outer aspect. He said every power tends to have a visible pole or outer form, be it a church, a nation, or an economy. And each power has an invisible pole, an inner spirit or driving force that animates it, legitimates it, and regulates its physical manifestation in the world. Neither pole, he says, is caused by the other, but both come into existence 
at the same time. Yeah, you might need to rewind that because I know I had to read it several times. Wink said, because we gave birth to them, they reflect us in our separated state. We called this the fallen state, like the fall of man, the fallen state. Systems reflect that fallen state. And so our systems need to be redeemed just like the people needed to be redeemed. Redeem the people, redeem the systems and bring them back together. Wink said, we cannot affirm a government, a university, a church, or business to be good unless at the same time we recognize they exist in this fallen or separated state. He continued, we cannot face their malignant intractability and oppressiveness unless we remember that they are simultaneously a part of God's good creation. Yet reflection on their creation and failed state will appear. When we, when we think about them as a whole, it makes sense. It makes sense and it's legitimate to have an education system, right? So we'll, when we think about the system, they appear to be, or the systems, they appear to be legitimate in these powers, the power that it has. We have to critique them, look closely at them, look at the inner life of them, and seek the redemption of the, of the systems. Now, it's a word that we only really hear about humanity, redeemed humanity. But redeeming humanity is a process of turning around, making right all of creation because humanity was given to oversee, subdue, and have dominion, like I preached last week, in the, in the proper terms, to be protected and to be encouraged toward its potential. Listen, we can't just change to create something different or another system. We've been trying that stuff for years, right? And uh, it hasn't worked. We can't leave the old system in place and then erect a new system because the old system is there festering and growing and it's striving to incorporate the new system and twist it. This is spiritual wickedness in high places. Spiritual wickedness, wickedness is the twisting. It's the twisting of our systems, how we live out life to fulfill our mandate. So there exists personal redemption for the people and there exists, according to Wink, institutional redemption. Now, I think he's on to something. You may not believe it. I can't make you believe a thing. I'm not trying to. My job is to expose you to as much as God leads me to expose you and I too, and for the Holy Spirit to lead all of us into truth. So I'm not trying to take over the Holy Spirit's job in your life, but you can prevent and I can prevent the Holy Spirit from doing the Holy Spirit's job in our life. My encouragement, my desires for us to become even more sensitive and listen to the Spirit and ask the Spirit questions of what you're hearing today. Engaging in the process of redeeming our systems provides us with a path for deep social change that realigns us 
with our mandate, be fruitful, multiply, protect or fill the earth by protecting it and one another. This is how we exercise caring, fulfilling dominion. Personal and institutional redemption go together. They can't be considered separately as the church so often does. We want to separate ourselves from the things that are happening in the world like God is, you know, heaven is our ultimate home. God created us, gave us physical bodies to be people of the earth. We are awaiting new bodies and a new earth because we were called to be here. And that newness isn't just a voila, there was work to be done. The clear example of work to be done in the transformation is that God entered God's creation to help inaugurate that transformation. Jesus came and took on a body and is now King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and is instrumental in untwisting that mess that we've made, redeeming us and the systems of our world. Wink offers this example to help us understand what he means about social change requiring personal and institutional redemption. By redeemed, we mean um, just as people require being rescued from our failures that cause separation, so too our system needs to be rescued. Our systems need to be rescued from their failures and how they cause separation and harm to people. In his example, he uses what he calls the myth of redemptive violence. It's the belief that violence saves, that war brings peace, that might makes right. So Americans have devoted great resources to our great military industrial complex, right? As a result of our steep investment, we, pro we project force as a solution to conflict. You better do it or I'll beat you up. Now, when we think of conflicts like Afghanistan, we can ask ourselves, how's that working out? What happens is that Americans are individually and collectively socialized to believe and form a mentality that insists on it responding to perceived enemies with fear and with force or violence to correct, and we think it's a correct response. Refusing to confront this tendency, this twistedness, refusing to confront the violence within ourselves personally and socially through our social institution blinds us to the alternative approaches that can lead to transformation and open opportunities for us to move toward unity. Our embrace of the meaning of dominion being to take something by force of will instead of being protective and offering protective care is a problem. It's the reason we tend toward large-scale violent tendencies. People are marching for against injustice in Portland and the response is to send out the National Guard against them or in Philly, send out the guard so that the power of this system will force the others down. Terrorism is another thing that we often use violence with. Terrorism 
no matter whether it's homegrown or from across the waters, is an act of trying to force the will of another upon the folks who are experiencing the terrorism. We understand that principalities can and do, or I hope we're coming to understand, that principalities and powers do refer to human systems, but they also refer to actual demonic powers. I believe that, I believe that they do. My experience in my 50 some odd years of life have taught me in some ways that, um, you know, have made me stand up and notice that demonic powers, an enemy, Satan, that kind of thing, exist. Evil These experiences have confirmed in me. So to tell you that I didn't believe that, I'd be lying. And, um, and I don't wanna lie to you. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to believe the way I believe, but I'm just trying to be honest and be open. Evil, that kind of evil is real, okay? But what I'm saying in this sermon in particular the point I'm trying to make is that we can't hold Satan and demons as the only place where principalities and powers exist. I believe our unbalanced systems provide them with a place in which to dwell and that they help with the twisting. Therefore, we must do something about them. Now at time, God still inter intervenes and holds back the severe consequences to give us opportunities to seek God's help so we can participate in redeeming the systems. We've got to participate because God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to us, to human beings. God hasn't changed God's mind that we're the ones, the ones called to bless the earth. We cannot and will not escape our responsibility. I don't have an escape theology to give you about flying away to heaven and forgetting it all. I don't see that in scripture. We were created for the earth. We will return to the earth. Now the principalities and powers in human systems are the inner aspects or poles that Wink spoke about, these are the poles of the power. We must, we must work to change the inner aspect, the place where demonic might live, the places where it takes root in the thoughts of people and becomes a new mandate, that we have to follow the system, the thing that attracts us to it and makes us keep legitimizing it in ways that shouldn't be legitimized. The thing that makes us only wanna deal with the surface issue and not the reality the surface issue of banking the banking system is that you know it's there for everybody but the rich are benefiting the deeper issue has to be addressed in the question why are we okay with allowing a system when there are more of us than there are the rich why are we okay with allowing that system is it in the depths of our heart the greed 
that one day we too can be like them and the all the messages that get sent to us that we can be like this level we can go to the next level of life if we do this if we wear this deodorant if we buy this car if we have this credit rating if we do this house we can be when we already can be all of that because God called us with purpose and God's desire God creator of heaven and earth's desire is to release what God has placed in us you know it's 2020 and we're still dealing with rape culture we're still dealing with racial injustice and we're still dealing with people not having enough to eat. And we're still dealing with the failures of, of, of our educational system, trying to give minimal education so people stay in minimal situations and status in our country. It's 2020. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And Christ has given his body a distinct role to play in the transformation of the world. That transformation being moving from being anchored in what separates us and all the strata that's there to coming together and being more unified. Now, in the city of God, the city of Satan, written by Robert Linthicum, he asserts that our cities, the city, he asserts about our cities, that the city is the habitation of God and a battleground where God and Satan engage in constant spiritual warfare. Now, I believe the entire earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I believe that the earth is the habitation of God. So I think Linthicum was saying this because of the time in which he wrote this, just before the turn of the century. Um, and I think he was addressing more so the evangelical church, American church, regarding you know, you're, I would always hear people talking about, let's take back the city for God. And I'm just like, don't we need to take back the farm and take back the, I mean, what, what are we taking back? We just, we need to bless all of those things. And so I think he was addressing that kind of mindset that the city was evil. Where we are in the suburbs is great, but the city is evil. And we know what that's all about. Not good. Um, so... I don't agree with that. I don't have that issue about the cities and I don't have that particular need. I'm, I'm like, so I don't, I don't need that portion of his argument. And again, I insert that the entire earth is the habitation of God. Lithincom also goes on to say that the city is a place where God and Satan are engaged in spiritual warfare. Yeah, I get that. But there's something about that I don't care for either. Okay. And yeah, I know I said I like this guy and this guy helped transform my life. But listen to me. I can like him. I cannot like some of the things he says and still learn from him and be changed because God and the Holy Spirit are just like that. They'll bring a thought that was written in the book and pull all the pieces together for me and be like, bam. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't see that. Thank you, God. You know? So I can disagree with him and still learn from him. Okay. I don't like this particular language he uses about the cities because it places, or about spiritual warfare, because it places God and Satan as peers, equal, fighting things out. If the two of them are engaged in spiritual warfare, and scripture says they are, then what's the deal, you ask me, right? Glad you asked. God gave the being fruitful and multiplying and fill the earth, 
he gave it to us. Thus the earth, thus it means that God gave dominion to us, to humankind, to exercise, to care for, to make better, to bring to its fulfillment. So folks, some folks say um, we lost dominion when Satan, to Satan in the fall of the separation. And that Jesus as a human being took back human caring dominion of the earth. So when God and Satan are battling in spiritual warfare, it's not a battle for possession. It's a battle for influence. It's not a battle for possession. Jesus is king and Lord. It is a battle for influence. Influence in and over the lives of people on the earth. Influence in our lives, the people who God gave care of the earth too. The battle is over who will influence us and thus have more impact on creation. The, the, they are not equal, yet God and Satan both want influence. One, one for good, which results in unity. One for evil, which results in separation. Yeah, makes sense. Linthicum argues with Wink in his understanding that humans have a responsibility for addressing social, for the causes and to address social evil. And Linthicum acknowledges that there are institutionalized evil systems that require transformation by God through us. Just like we require transformation, he believed that transformation should touch all aspects of life, spiritual, social, physical, religious. I want to repeat this. And Linthicum acknowledges that there are institutionalized evils that require transformation by God through us. Ephesians 3.10 says, through the church, the complicated, multifaceted wisdom of God would be made known to principalities and powers by us. I'm not just making this up. Dr. Linthicum serves as our guide, or he can serve as a guide, on what we must be done to bring about this redemption. And for him, there are four Ps. We must be, pres must be present. Um, we can't run away from the city. We can't run away from the suburbs or the problems in rural areas. We can't run away. We have to be present because Jesus is present through us. We, the body of Christ, must be there as bold witnesses, engaging the powers. Kind of say, yo guys, we here. Things are gonna be done a bit different and we're gonna get down to the root of stuff. And difference, we're gonna bring about difference. The next thing, so presence, now prayer. We need God. I don't necessarily know, given a specific thing, what we should do right now, but the Holy Spirit can tell us. And so we need God's help to see just what the principalities and powers are that we're dealing with. We need God to intervene. And uh, sometimes we need God just to make things still and stop for a little bit. So we have a minute to address the issues. We need God to give 
revelation on how to address the issue and then grace and confidence to do what we now know we need to. We need God's help to bring other people peace so that they and we can all experience shalom. We need God all over this. We need, and prayer means that we're inviting God in and we're receiving God's instruction and support. God isn't way up there. God's right here. And we have a relationship. Then we need practice. That's the third P. We have got to incorporate being new creations, what it means to be a new creation, in dealing with the system. I'm a new creation. So when the system wants to deal with me like I am as a black woman, nothing or gum under people's shoe, as a new creation, I don't even get to that level. I go, what did Michelle Obama say? We go high when they go low. You live down in the swampland of separation. I'm up here with Jesus in unity. And so I've got to practice that. And my practice doesn't even count sometimes about being mad. I need to behave like the person I am in the situation. And it's amazing when you go in with that kind of authority, people start doing what needs to be done. The system starts popping. So we need to practice who we are. And if we're not practicing who we are, boldly before the people, we're just talking smack. And I've had enough of that. I believe you've had enough of that. But it starts right here with us. Can't sit back and go, I'm tired of the church talking smack. I want to see the church do something different. You the church. People waiting for you to do something different. All right. I think I might have lost one. And then proclamation. Now, I know that's a churchy word. And part of, you know, us don't want to hear, or we don't want to hear churchy words. But we can reclaim these words, and it's important, right? We've got to tell people in very public ways that God is still here and God is still at work and that God wants to transform the system. We need to tell people why the system is out of alignment with what God is saying. We need to tell this not only to people who don't know God, but the people who are in our family, children of God, that don't know God so well. We need to help them see. We have the ability Scripture tells us we can lay hands on the blind. We lay hands through our proclamation. We lay hands through our love. We lay hands through gently guiding people through the scripture for revelation and for relationship with the Holy Spirit. So their pastors or these other people stop being gurus that is not aligned with God's thinking. I'm called as an under-shepherd to care for you, not so you follow me around off a cliff. That is not what God called us to do. My job is to lead you into a closer relationship with God, to get out of the way, and then as a community of faith, we work for transformation. My role, I get to lead some of this stuff. For the period of God, time, God has assigned me to lead it. And then I respectfully move when it's time for another. That's, that's the deal. But this stuff isn't easy, yet it's still ours to do. These things we need to do, to, there are things we need to do to prepare ourselves um, that'll keep us 
as we engage the powers. Remember I said the demonic is real and sometimes they live within the system. That's where they dwell. And so we'll encounter things that I want to scare you off. My first engagement in leadership in a Christian organization, let me tell you the craziness I had to deal with. And I had to come to grips with the reality. Satan is real. And I had to do some binding and I had to do some loosening and I had to understand what binding and loosening were. And we'll get there. We're going to get to all of this so I could move and what God said. And sometimes I got my, 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 my backside kicked, honest. But I might get down, but I'm not out because greater is he who lives or she who lives in me than it that said the world. The church has been lost to these realities for far too long. Satan wants us Evil wants us to be in this position where we're supporting what's separating us and calling it good. And we have to proclaim that it's not. We can't let those lies on God continue. We've got to stand up and speak up and speak out. But we speak out not just with rhetoric. We speak out with our very lives. Unto us, the church. God has given us this job to declare to the principalities and the powers the multifaceted complicated will of God so if God tells us to do something God wants us to do something God will equip us he's equipping you she's equipping me they are equipping all of us for this work now here's the deal you willing to do it because systems are supposed to benefit us there needs to be a balance you willing to do what it takes to move the systems back and the people back up so there is balance I double dog day to trust God double dog day ask God how you can be a part of that because I know the Spirit of God will tell you so be blessed let's continue to worship God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform he plants his footsteps in
Mosaic family, let me speak a benediction and a prayer over you as we close our service together. Gracious God, patient spirit, and giving son, we ask that you help us believe in you when so many leaders, institutions, and systems let us down, hurt us, and go wrong. Help us to see how your system of love and justice works and help us to see how we can play a role in your holy system of goodness, salvation, righteousness, healing, equality, and abundance for every single person. Give us the patience to stay the course and the willingness to put others first and the courage to act and pray. And as we remember when we read Psalms 121, we lift up our heads so we can see where our strength to act and to pray comes from. Help us see a way forward for our own lives, for our families, our neighborhoods, our city, our nation, and our world. Help us remember and help us declare together that we believe that our help comes from you, God. We remember that you watch over us. You never stop watching over us. Never stop leading us. Never fall asleep on the job. And never stop being with us. Amen and amen.
Thank you.